0: If you like what you hear today, we encourage you to share this with your friends or family. Enjoy.
1: For a number of years now, work has been proceeding in order to bring perfection to the crudely conceived idea of a transmission that would not only supply inverse reactive current for use in unilateral phase detractors, but would also be capable of automatically synchronizing cardinal grammeters. Such an instrument is the turbo encabulator. Now, basically, the only new principle involved is that instead of power being generated by the relative motion of conductors and fluxes, it is produced by the modial interaction of magneto reluctance and capacitive directance. The original machine had a base plate of prefamulated amulite surmounted by a malleable logarithmic casing in such a way that the two spurving bearings were in a direct line with a panometric fan. The latter consisted simply of six hydrocoptic Marsel vanes, so fitted to the ambifacient lunar wane shaft that side fumbling was effectively prevented. The main winding was of the normal lotus o delta type placed in panendermic semi-boloid slots of the stator. Every seventh conductor being connected by a non-reversible tremie pipe to the differential girdle spring on the up end of the Grammys. The turboencabulator has now reached a high level of development and it's being successfully used in the operation of trunnions. Moreover, whenever a fluorescent score motion is required, it may also be employed in conjunction with a drawn reciprocation dingle arm to reduce sinusoidal repleneration. It's not cheap, but I'm sure the government will buy it. (laughs)
2: <laughs> you guys confused? You were meant to be. Uh, that video was uh, written and recorded by a guy named Bud Haggart. He's the guy that you saw on the screen. And he was one of the premier voice talents for technical videos back in those days. So videos that would explain how our carburetor works and microwave and all that sort of stuff. And he said 90% of the scripts he read, he had no idea what he was saying. So he wanted to write a script. Where if you could watch it, you could feel the same sense of confusion that he felt during his day job. And I think it certainly accomplishes that. It's one of my favorite videos. But the reason it made us laugh is because we all know what it's like to be confused, right? We've all experienced deep moments of confusion. The first day at a new school, uh, the first day at a new job, the first few weeks in a new town, the first time you try to put together a piece of Ikea furniture, you're like, really? There's no words? This is crazy. But one of the most confusing things in our lives, scientists have figured out, sociologists, all all sorts of people, is our finances. And uh, a 2022 survey done by Capital One found that 77% of Americans, so well over three quarters, report feeling anxious about their financial situation. Uh, 58% felt like their finances controlled their lives. 52% had difficulty with money-related worry. Uh, 68% are worried that they won't have enough to retire. 56% are stressed about keeping up with the cost of living because that inflation and those interest rates keep going up. 45% um, have trouble managing their debt. And then this survey asked, is this affecting different areas of your lives? And over 40% of the respondents said, yes, absolutely. That because of where their finances were, their confusion, they, they faced a daily fatigue. It made it difficult to concentrate at work. It made it hard to fall asleep at night. And it was actually affecting their real world relationships. And if I had to guess, that's a lot of us listening right now. Um, that was Jenny and I during our first few years of marriage. We got married really early. I was 21. When we got married, we had our first kid when I was 23. Next one when I was 24. So we just started off real young. And uh, well, we didn't make a whole lot of money in those uh, early years. And. Um, Finances were the number one stressor in our lives and in our marriage. We had no idea how to handle our student loans. We didn't know how to approach taxes, and that happens every year. Uh, We didn't know how to get to a place where we could start giving. We didn't know how to start saving. It was just a confusing, stressful nightmare for a few years until, until we took what's um, called financial coaching and still is. It's a class that Hope offered. We did that 10 years ago. We still offer it today. And it was a life-changing experience. Our coach did something uh, that we had never experienced, that we've never forgotten. Shout out to Sue for changing our lives. Uh, but she showed us all of these principles about how to handle our finances. And there are all these principles out of God's word of all places. Not Harvard Business Review, not the financial times, just the good old Bible. And as we became disciplined in, in setting a plan and walking through with that plan and applying these principles slowly, but surely we began to feel peace and we began to feel rest. And we felt a lot more prepared to handle our finances the way that God instructs us to. And I'm so glad that we got that help early on Because there's some folks listening right now that, man, if you would have just had the advice 10 years ago, you would have been so much further ahead. And you wouldn't have to worry about retirement or how to pay for your kids' college, all that sort of stuff. But the best time to start is the present. Um, And that's what we want to do over the next three weeks. If you're confused when it comes to money and finances, you're not alone. But get this, there are over 2,350 verses in the Bible that tell us, just flat out explain how God wants us to handle our finances. God never wants us to be confused. God never even wants us to feel like we're in over our heads. I heard the story of a lady who came uh, to one of our campuses for some financial coaching just a few weeks ago, and she was in a hole. She would admit that. I have no idea how I'm gonna put food on the table, how I'm gonna pay my car payment and mortgage. And after just a few hours of thinking about these biblical principles, she was able to, to set a plan. And now she, she said, just after that one meeting, I have hope. I have hope that I can not only get out of this hole, but I can make huge strides in the future. So in the Bible, we literally have an instruction manual about how to think, how to approach our financial lives. So if you're sitting and you're listening and you're a little bit worried because I've been talking about money for like five minutes, don't be. We're doing this series for you, not to get something from you. And if you're confused, If you find this financial stuff a little mysterious, a little cryptic, uh, in the next few weeks, we want to demystify much of that. And our hopes is by the end of it, we're going to make your dollars make a lot more sense, pun intended. All right, so our plan is to go from confusion to clarity and then to calm. So this week, we're just going to be going over one truth, which is a one-point message, basically. We're going to be going over the overriding 30,000 foot. If you had to base your finances on just one principle, this would be the one. We're going to go over just one truth before we get super, super practical the next two weeks. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 25. Look at you guys bringing physical Bibles. I love it. Go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 25. We're going to just slowly walk through one parable or one short story that Jesus tells uh, his listeners. It's in verses 14 through 30. As you're turning there, uh, this section of scripture, Jesus is preparing his disciples for his eventual absence. Right? So he's been living and walking and doing life just side by side with his disciples for about three years. Well, he knows soon he's going to be arrested He's going to be crucified, he's going to be risen from the grave, and he's going to go ascend to his father up in heaven, which is going to leave the disciples alone. I mean, they have the spirit. Jesus says that's better, but um, he, they're, going to, they're going to have to figure out how they should live and how they should act without Jesus around them. So Jesus uses these parables, this, this section of scripture, to kind of tell them what he expects of them and us in his absence. And so he tells this series of four parables, and in each of these parables, you have a master leaving or going on a long trip and then coming back and seeing if his servants were faithful when he was gone. And the first two parables are just about the the importance of being faithful. Like when the master comes back, don't let him catch you sleeping, okay? You want to be found faithful. And then the last two explain the criteria of faithfulness. The last two explain what does faithfulness actually look like. And wouldn't you know it, the very first criteria that Jesus points to for faithfulness is how we handle our finances. Isn't that crazy? So let's read this whole parable and then we'll walk through it slowly. It's Matthew 25, verse 14. It says this, again, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. This is the third parable in a string of these. He called together his servants and entrusted his money to them while he was gone. He gave five bags of silver to one, two bags of silver to another, and one bag of silver to the last, dividing it in proportion to their abilities. He then left on his trip. The servant who received the five bags of silver began to invest the money and earn five more, doubled it. The servant with two bags of silver also went to work and earned two more. But the servant who received one bag of silver dug a hole in the ground and hid the master's money. After a long time, their master returned from his trip and called them to give an account of how they had used his money. The servant to whom he had entrusted the five bags of silver came forward with five more and said, Master, you gave me five bags of silver to invest. I've earned five more. And the master was full of praise. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in handling this small amount. So now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. The servant who had received two bags of silver came forward and said, Master, you gave me two bags of silver to invest. I've earned two more. The master said, well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in handling this small amount. So now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. Then the servant with the one bag of silver came and said, Master, I knew you were a harsh man, harvesting crops you didn't plant and gathering crops you didn't cultivate. I was afraid I would lose your money, so I hid it in the earth. Look, here's your money back. But the master replied, You wicked and lazy servant. If you knew I harvested crops I didn't plant and gathered crops I didn't cultivate, why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest on it. Then he ordered, take the money from this servant and give it to the one with the ten bags of silver. To those who use well what they are given, even more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. Now, throw this useless servant into outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Isn't Jesus the greatest storyteller ever? Like he just, maybe he's been sitting on this for 3,000 years, I don't know, but he just comes up with this stuff. Now, I want, I want to give you the main truth right up front, okay? Don't get up and leave, but I want to give you the big truth, and then we'll dig into the text. You ready? Here's, here's the truth that'll change your life. You ready? It says, when it comes to our finances, God is the owner. I'm just the steward. God is the owner. I'm just the steward. That's the main point that Jesus is making here. Let's break it down. God is the owner. If you just opened up the first few pages of the Bible, you'd see him creating, and creating, and creating, and creating everything, including us, and you would just naturally know, oh, he created it all, he owns it all. And that's true of every single thing in the universe, um, including our finances as well. Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its people belong to him. And I see some of you nodding, like I think we would just naturally agree with that. But for some reason when it comes to our finances, when it comes to what's in our bank account, there's just something natural inside us that says, well, maybe all that's his, but maybe, maybe a little bit of this is mine. We think, you know, maybe he gave us a break or two. Maybe, maybe he gave us a really good initial investment. But God's not the one that's been getting up and busting his butt at work for the past, you know, 10, 15, 20, 40 years. God's not the one that fought after promotion, after promotion, after promotion. God's not the one that's put his blood, sweat, and tears to earn all of us. Certainly, certainly, I'm, I'm entitled to, to own some of this. To which the Bible would say, well, who, who gave you the talents that are employable? Well, God did. Right, who, who gave you the giftings that you use in, in research or in pharmaceuticals or in the service industry or in art or in music or who orchestrated the circumstances that made it possible to get you that job or more than that, who is causing your heart to beat at this very moment? Beat, beat, it's God. Or who allowed you to breathe in that last breath you just took? And the next one, without even thinking about it, it's God. Everything in your life from your body to your mind, to your talents, to your gift, to the money that's in the bank that he's placed in your life. It's nothing but a gift of God. I mean, if it was yours, if you really owned it, then you could take it in the next life with you. But you can't, can you? As the old saying says, you you never see a a hearse towing a U-Haul. Because naked you came into this world and naked you shall depart. because God owns it all. You see, but here's the cool thing. He has entrusted a portion to you. That's what the text says. He called together his servants and entrusted his money to them while he was gone. See, the money that I have, the money that you have, it's just been entrusted to us for a certain season, a certain time period. And that in and of itself is super, super simplifying. I naturally treat something I'm entrusted with way differently than I treat something that I own. we have any homeowners in the room, a few of us? yeah home you can do whatever you want to it I mean if you get a permit and the HOA agrees right you can put chickens in the attic I don't know you can you can you can add extra bathrooms you can put a screened in porch but have you ever like been a house sitter for someone that's a lot more simple of a deal right because when you walk in you get a list of stuff you can do and have to do and shouldn't do and you just intrinsically know like you don't, your friends don't want to come out and you've changed all the paint around and say, Hey, I switched your bathroom to your bedroom and your bedroom to your bathroom. And I put bidets and all the rest and be like, Hold on now. I just entrusted this to you for a few days. You're going crazy, right? Because when you're entrusted with something, it's just a simpler set of rules. And notice, he gives different amounts to each person. So to one person, he gave five bags, to one person, he gave two, and to one person, he gave one. Well, why? Because he decided that's what he wanted to give him. See, the amount of money that you have, if it's a lot, it's not because of your ingenuity. Or the lack of money that you have. It might not be because of a lack of opportunities or anything like it. It's because God has decided what amount you get. So if you have a lot, don't go sticking your chest out and strutting. That's just the grace of God. And if you don't have a lot right now, don't go complaining or playing the victim, again, that, that, that's just God's decision. Well, what determines the amount? Well, I think it's a lot of different things. I, I don't think this parable is the end-all, be-all. It doesn't tell us everything God wants us to know about finances. But I think, you know, God definitely uses money to work in our hearts. So there's some stuff that he wants us to learn or some habits he wants us to stop. So he might give a whole lot of money to someone because that's the only way this individual will learn, hey, money doesn't really lead to joy or he might severely limit what another person has because that's the only way they will learn, hey, I can be happy without a lot. It could be any number of reasons, but one reason this parable says is because it's according to their ability. They get an amount based on their proven track record of faithfulness. So God says, I'm gonna give this person a whole lot because they've proven that they can handle that much and i'm not going to give this person a whole lot because they haven't proved that they can handle a whole lot yet not yet so again if you have a lot don't get pro- like that's a that's a that's a huge responsibility that's a humbling task that god has entrusted and he trusts you with it and if you haven't been and if you've been given a li- uh, been given a little don't despair because guess what the guy that got five guess where he started he started with one and if you're faithful with one who knows next time you might get two And then you might get five. Or you might get 10. You might get 20. So he entrusts people with different amounts for different reasons. um, A lot having to do with our, our, our proven track record. But get this. He has the same expectations for everyone. So different amounts with the same expectations. So rather you make... $30,000 $30,000 a year or $300,000 a year or $3 million a year, or you're a college student, you come back home and you make $3,000 one summer. It, it's, the same, it's the same expectations on all of that, which again simplifies everything. There, there aren't different rules for the super wealthy and the barely scraping by. Each person has the same list of objectives, the same expectations. And that's what the next two weeks in this series are. So these people receive this certain amount that God chooses that he entrusts to them, and the master leaves, and they get busy. Well, two of them do. And the one who got five, he, he invests it, he trades it. I don't know what that means. It maybe puts it in the stock market, and he doubles it. And the other person that got two works theirs as well. Maybe they use that two to, to buy some stuff and then sell it on eBay for, for double. I don't know, but they make their, their four, except for our one guy, right? He, he digs a hole in the ground just buries it. But then the master returns, and this is where things get interesting. Write this down. There will be a day of accountability. The master eventually returns in all these stories. Here's something all these parables have in common. Did you notice what the text says? It says, after a long time, the master in all these parables stays away so long that at least one character in each of these parables starts thinking, man, I don't think this dude's ever going to come back. And then they start living as if he's not. And that's when they get into trouble. That's our guy with the one bag. One commentator says that the reason this guy buried this money in the ground, instead of putting in the bank, where he could at least had a little bit of, of, of growth, is because when you bury it in the ground, guess what you don't have? You don't have a paper trail. There's no receipt that links that money in the ground to being the masters. And so if the master comes back, well, it's just right there. I'll just give it back to him. But if he never comes back, Surprise, surprise, that now becomes my money, you see? And that might be his motivation. Again, this guy never existed. This is a made-up story. But this is a temptation that that we all have to fight, isn't it? Because the longer God delays that day of accountability, the easier it is to slip into that owner's mindset, right? The, the, The longer he delays the easier to say, I, I know you've given me this and you're even giving me more and I know the rules and I know the obligations. I know that I should be using this to expand your kingdom, to, to expand uh, your works in this world, but I, I'm gonna let it budge just this one time because I really want this, this new, nothing wrong with buying a new car, but you just let it slip one time. And then the next thing and then the next thing and then the next thing and before you know it, we're treating our resources like we truly are the owners and we haven't given a second thought to what God might want us to do with it. Right? So we have to keep this in the front of our minds. There will be a day of accountability. And notice when that accountability comes, he judges us individually. So when he's in this parable, he has these individual conversations with each of these servants. This is so important because if he judged the group as a whole, everyone would have gotten off great. Because remember, he gave out, what, five and two? and He gave out eight bags and he got 15 in return. So that's like double the return if you're just looking at it as a group. That's, that's really good. But listen, what we see is that he cares less about the return. He cares less about the end result and more about individual faithfulness. He cares less about the end result and more about individual faithfulness. When you give an account for how you handled your money, God's not gonna ask you, hey, that, that church that you were a part of, how'd they do with their finances? How'd y'all do? Did y'all expand the kingdom? Now, there's going to be leaders of our church that will be held accountable and even more accountable is what God's word says. But he's not going to say, hey, how did that group of, of people you hang out with, how were y'all faithful with the finances that you have? No. He's going to say, how did you do individually? How faithful were you personally? And Jesus in his grace gives us a picture of what faithfulness looks like and what it doesn't. Faithfulness with our finances in this parable is simply this, faithfulness is fulfilling the master's wishes. Faithfulness is doing what the master tells us to do with the resources that he's entrusted to us. So to be faithful, you just have to figure out what the master wants you to do, and then you gotta do it. See, faithfulness is not just knowing what he wants, it's actually doing it. So you're gonna have a responsibility in the next three weeks, because you guys are gonna come back every week, right? And you're gonna hear all these principles, and you're gonna know exactly, not exactly, but to a high degree, what God wants you to do with your resources. And when that day of accountability comes, he's not going to give you a test on if you took good notes on these next three sermons. He's not going to say, hey, show me the paperwork that you completed, Financial Peace University. You're going to say, I understood the assignment. He's going to say, okay, well, let's let's roll the tapes. Let's see what you did. So all of us are going to have a responsibility to act in about three weeks. But here's the really cool thing I noticed in this parable. The reward for faithfulness is awesome, and it's the same for the one who made 5 into 10 as the one who made 2 into 4. See that? So if you're faithful with the limited resources that you have right now, guess what? You get the same reward as one who's faithful with millions or with billions. It's the exact same thing. And that reward is two things. First, you get entrusted with more is what God says. Say, here is a dude, here's a dudette that I can trust. Give them more responsibility. Give them more resources. Give them more. Now, don't, don't go overboard with that, like miss me with that health, wealth, prosperity stuff, right? I'm not saying that if you're faithful with your finances, God will absolutely bless you with more money. I do believe that he does that sometimes, not all the times. But maybe the more that you get is that you'll get more peace or you get more of a sense of purpose or you'll get more rest, You'll get more freedom, or you'll get more courage. Whatever it is, you get get a a greater opportunity to partner with God and what he's doing in this world. But not only do you get that, the, the parable says that we get joy. We get joy. And if you read it in like the ESV, a different translation, it says, the master says, enter into my joy. It's not a human joy. It's a supernatural joy. Listen, when you are faithful with whatever amount of resources you have, not only will you earn God's trust, but you're gonna experience a supernatural joy, a supernatural peace, and I'm telling you, it's true. Even now with with Jenny and I, I can tell that we're slipping back into an owner's mindset, slipping back into being bad stewards when I I lose that joy and I start feeling stress or I start feeling guilt or I start feeling anxiety. And that's just a red flag because that's such a stark difference than the supernatural joy that we get. And some of you, like you walked in here, you don't even care. Why should I even obey? Listen, that supernatural joy is better than any joy you can make for yourself with that money. Right? It's better than a boat. It's better than a vacation home. It is hands down worth worth it. That's the main motivation for me. So you get that. You get that when you're faithful. But then we have the unfaithful servant. Well, what made this guy unfaithful? Well, Jesus gives us two things. First, I'm not sure if you caught it, um, but he blames God. He makes excuses. He says, I knew you were a harsh man, harvesting crops you didn't plant, gathering crops you didn't cultivate, and because you were so harsh, I was afraid, man. If you weren't so scary, maybe oh, I would have stepped out on a limb and done something with these resources, but, but because you're so scary, I kind of shut me down. Now, I don't think that Jesus means for us to take that harshness and place it on our Heavenly Father. I think he's just telling a really realistic story. Masters master used to be harsh back then, but that, that temptation... To blame and make excuses is a real thing, isn't it? Like, well, if if you would have given me enough money, God, I would have taken these steps, but i got to pay bills. Or maybe if you would have stopped that one church that I went to for six months from not handling the gifts so well, then I would trust other churches and I would be generous. Or if you would have stopped my car from breaking down, then I could do what you want, but no, you had to let that happen. And over the next three weeks, you're going to come up with a lot of excuses. And so am I, <laughs> as I sit and listen. I know that, that doesn't excuse. What excuse do you think is going to work on the day of accountability? None of the ones you're going to come up with, I guarantee it. And so he gives excuses, but he's also called lazy. Just lazy. And I know we rarely see laziness as a sin. But if you read through the Proverbs and you see it on every page. Idleness, the refusal to take action. He knew what the master wanted, and he refused to do it. And So what did the master do? He said, take what he has, give it to the other servants, and then cast him out into the darkness where there's weeping and there's gnashing of teeth. Back in those days, if you were a servant, you would live on your master's estate. And so when you got fired, you weren't just facing a lack of money. You were homeless as well. Jesus tells parables about, about um, fired servants. So why did this guy receive such a harsh punishment? And I'm going to end here. I mean, he didn't lose any money. He didn't steal any of it and spend it on himself. He didn't do anything good with it, but he certainly didn't do anything bad with it. So why such the harsh punishment? Why did he have to lose out on the joy and miss out on the more? I think it's because ultimately by his actions, he proved he really wasn't a servant. And that was his job. I mean, that's the definition of a servant, isn't it? You do what your master asks you to do. The man failed and he missed out because he refused to live out this truth that God is the owner and I'm just the steward. And we don't want to be like that guy. So in the next two weeks, we're going we're gonna to learn what God expects of us as stewards. And uh, here's, I want to ask you to do two things before we step into the series. You ready? Here's the first thing. I want you to try to be here every single week. Just the next two weeks, you're, you're like 33.3% of the way there, right? So across all of our campuses, online, maybe try to come live. And this is going to be hard because a lot of our campuses are filling up. I don't know if you've noticed the crowds, but they are back. So get here early. I want you to come every single week. And then secondly, just this first week, I want you to have a conversation. Uh, maybe if you're a student, maybe talk to your parents. Uh, maybe if you're single, talk to a roommate or to a friend. If you're married, definitely talk to a spouse. Or if you're a... If you're married and have kids, it might be a really good conversation to have over dinner where you just get your kids and say, hey, here's the truth. God owns it all, and me and your mom, we're just stewards. Is the way that we're handling our finances, is it obvious that we're stewards? Right? And maybe try to come back with just the answer. What's one thing that I could change to be a better steward, to carry out my master's wishes more? And when you come back next week, you're going to hear an amazing talk It's going to be phenomenal. Not by me, I can say that. And uh, I'll be here. You're going to have so much practical tips from an expert. It's going to be phenomenal. But Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is so incredibly practical. Thank you that you're not a God of confusion, that you like to demystify. You you make make your plans for us uh, so crystal clear. And so, Father, I pray. I pray for steps to be taken in our hearts because what we believe about this stuff really affects our behavior. But I also pray that we could take steps in our behavior as well. And I pray, and I just pray for a little bit more peace, a little bit more financial freedom, even as we leave here today. And we pray all of these things for your name and your glory's sake. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to the HOPE Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this message and encourage you to share it with your friends and family. If you live in the greater Raleigh-Durham area in North Carolina, we'd love to meet you at one of our weekend gatherings. For campus locations, service times, and information on our children and student environments, check out gethope.net. To make sure you don't miss our next message, please take a moment to hit the subscribe button. We would like to invite you to support what we are doing by visiting gethope.net slash give. Through generosity of people like you, Hope can run programs like our food pantry, homework club, project classroom, and many more.